one of your hosts, Kalinda. And I'm the other one, Ivy. We go episode by episode through Murdoch Mysteries, uh, and we engage in some light Googling of the technologies and historical references and landmarks in the show. Uh, if you don't know, the Murdoch Mysteries is a detective drama set in 1890s Toronto, Canada, centered around Detective Murdoch, who's a real renaissance man, um, and he uses cutting-edge technology of the time to solve murders. Today we watched Season 1, Episode 2, The Glass Ceiling. So it was my turn this week to do a recap of the episode. We're going to go full in-depth spoilers, whodunit, the whole shebang. Ivy, are you ready? I was born for this. Give it to me. Okay. (laughs) I can't wait. So... It opens with um, Inspector Thomas Brackenreed, Chief Inspector of Station Number 4, and he's Murdoch's boss, uh, giving a keynote for Canadian police. He's talking about one of their tougher cases, a windowless room locked from the inside where a man was found electrocuted with no electricity in the room. All that was out of place was a shattered jar, a chain, a wooden disc, and some foil. Ingredients for a Leyden jar. So during this speech, we see flashes of the present day. Someone's writing a letter to the inspector, locking a trunk, placing the note atop the trunk, um, and we see a flash of a hook. So Brackenreed, back in the meeting, is questioned by Chief Constable Stockton about the nature of a Leyden jar, but Brackenreed fumbles and Murdoch steps in to help explain what it is and how it works. Stockton asks how he figured it out and cue Murdoch Mind Palace. (laughs) He doesn't have a good answer um, and when the meeting's adjourned, Stockton asks to speak with Murdoch. So in the carriage ride back, Murdoch and Brackenreed are talking. Brackenreed asks what Murdoch talked to Stockton about and Murdoch confesses that Um, Stockton suggested he apply for an inspector position at station number three. Murdoch's considering since he thinks the change in scenery would be good for him because he's quote unquote had some challenges as of late. Don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't even know what that is. Are they just going (laughs) to leave us hanging on that one? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, We might might have an idea. At least I think I do later in his interview of, of what that sort of means. Okay. But Bracken Reed warns against it. He says Murdoch isn't cut out for the crap that comes along with being an inspector. They arrive at the station. Crabtree tells Bracken Reed that a trunk has been delivered for him. Uh, Bracken Reed opens the note, reads it, and then tells Crabtree to open the trunk. Inside, dun dun dun, it's a body! So Murdoch recognizes the man, a Percival Pollock, a known lawyer. Ogden takes the body away to perform a post-mortem while Murdoch is called into Brackenreed's office. Brackenreed shows Murdoch the note, written with um, a pen and a ruler to not give away penmanship. And so the note says, Dear Inspector Brackenreed, have you missed me? Percy did. I paid him a visit. Murdoch thinks that it's someone who knew both the victim and Brackenreed, and since they're a lawyer and cop respectively, there's a number of people who may want them dead. So they visit Percy's wife, Clara Pollock, who's heartbroken. Uh, They ask when she last saw her husband, and she replies one week ago. He had gone on a train to Montreal for a case, but stopped before leaving at a business meeting outside Mimico. 
She gives them the address, um, but they think that the body was too fresh to be dead for a week. So Murdoch decides to retrace Percy's steps while Brackenreed heads back to the office to look through old case files that he and Pollock worked on together. Murdoch rides his bicycle to the address out in Mimico, Birkin Farms, and sees a man on a bicycle with a motor driving through a field nearby. Uh, Murdoch stops at the farm and talks with Dr. Gilbert Birkins. They go back and forth about the nature of mechanical transportation, Murdoch arguing that the fumes and the roads needed to carry them makes it seem unlikely. Oh, here we are in present day. (laughs) (laughs) Murdoch, how could you? (laughs) Uh, So Gilbert and Percy were partners for the mechanical bike business. Uh, Percy stopped by briefly and seemed in high spirits before leaving for Montreal. So Murdoch finds the carriage driver who drove Percy to Mimico and back to Union Station. Doesn't seem to be anything amiss there. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Cut to Murdoch meeting with Dr. Ogden about the autopsy. He died from blood loss after being stabbed in the heart with a narrow knife. No sign of struggle, no bruising, signifying they may have known each other. Uh, and the killer knew what he was doing. Uh, there's sawdust in the hair. Don't know what that means yet. Death was... 36 to 48 hours ago, leaving five days unaccounted for. And in the wound are pupae of an unknown species, so cut to Murdoch rifling through a book, looking to see if he can identify them. Crabtree stops by to tell Murdoch that Stockton called. Murdoch almost forgot about his appointment with Stockton. So cut to him talking with Stockton uh, in an interview. He's asked about his history and family. We learned that Murdoch was previously engaged to a woman named Liza Milner, who passed away a year ago, which is sort of my guess as to what he was signaling at why he might want to get out of town and go somewhere else. Mm. Well, Station 3 is still in Toronto, but why he would want to change a pace, maybe. Yeah. A career opportunity. Yeah. And he also says that he's a Roman Catholic. So Stockton nods, says says how impressive his resume is, and then dismisses him for now. Now back at the office, Murdoch investigates the note that came with the trunk. He talks with Crabtree, who informs him that Pollock had a ticket for Montreal, but it was never used. So he was dropped at the station, but never boarded the train. Interesting. Uh, Brackenreed calls for Detective Murdoch, and they travel to Brackenreed's house, where we meet his wife and two boys, because another trunk has been delivered, this time to Brackenreed's home. The note addressed to Brackenreed uh, reads, Guess who's next, Inspector? No need to guess. Uh, after a commercial break, we see it's Judge Henry Scott. Murdoch believes the next target is Brackenreed himself. Ogden delivers preliminary results, but Brackenreed seems to now be able to guess them. Uh, The thin knife, stiletto knife, straight to the heart. Clearly he's seen this pattern before. So later at a pub, drinking scotch, he tells Murdoch what he knows. Five years ago, a gangster named Walter Ayat was brought in by Brackenreed. Percy Pollock was the crown prosecutor and Henry Scott was the judge. Ayat vowed all three of them would pay. They believed that Ayat died in a jailbreak, but now they're not so sure, so Murdoch suggests assigning men to protect Brackenreed, but he defensively argues against it, saying he'll take care of himself. <laughs> Ugh. The next day, Murdoch and Brackenreed butt heads again. Murdoch not convinced that Ayat is alive, believing it doesn't add up, but Brackenreed is angry and aggressive, determined to find Ayat before Ayat finds him. 
Crabtree drops off some files for Murdoch and asks about the smell in Murdoch's office. It smells like something's gone off, but Murdoch says he doesn't smell anything. In the files, it says that in the prison escape, Ayat's body was badly burned, potentially badly enough to be misidentified. So Murdoch asks for the body to be exhumed. Murdoch goes to visit the secretary who worked with Judge Henry Scott, the most recently deceased. Uh, she mentions that about half past four, there was a telephone call for the judge, and it was a woman who sounded very upset. Murdoch asks Crabtree to look into who and where the phone call came from. But Crabtree, confused, asks, can that be done? Murdoch <laughs> says, I don't see why not. <laughs> Love the idea that this is a new concept. It's innovative policing. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so in the meanwhile, Brackenreed has pulled in um, and beaten one of Ayat's old men um, until he relents, giving him the information he wants. Brackenreed goes off with some of his men and stores an old building where Ayat has supposedly been staying, but it's empty. Murdoch notices a trip wire just before Brackenreed walks into it, and when they safely trip the wire, a cupboard opens and a stiletto knife comes flying out and embeds in the back wall. Booby traps! So, it was a setup, <laughs> clearly, with some bad info. Brackenreed goes back to Ayat's man, um, still bloody, he's really angry, but he won't relent. Uh, Murdoch suggests they follow the evidence, but it takes time, and Brackenreed doesn't have much time to spare. So Ogden comes to see Murdoch, and once again, she also comments on the awful smell in his office. Murdoch suggests that maybe something's died in the walls, and he's likely just grown accustomed to it, but Ogden's clearly grossed out. <laughs> so they step outside, and Ogden tells Murdoch that the, the body that they exhumed is too small to be Ayat's, but may be another one of the escapees. So it seems like a large mistake, potentially an inside job kind of mistake. So Ogden says she'll look into it. But before she leaves, she asks if it's true that Murdoch has applied for another position. Murdoch says yes. And Ogden says she would be sorry to see him leave. She pretty clearly seems sweet on him. <laughs> and then, yes, here comes the fourth wall break. Crabtree comes back, having figured out who the caller of the judge was. Crabtree says that he'll call the technique tracing as he had the operator literally trace the wires on the switchboard. Uh, turns out the caller was Mrs. Pollock. She said that she needed legal advice, so she called the judge and he agreed to come by the house. He came straight after work and stayed half an hour, then went home. She'd wanted to talk to him about a large investment that Percy had made before he died, practically all our savings, she says. It was an investment in Birkin's motorcycle business. She'd hope Percy would reconsider since he had been burned before by making an investment previously in another of Dr. Birkin's inventions. So then Crabtree and Murdoch start going through patents to see what that previous invention was. Crabtree says he heard about Murdoch applying for the inspector position and seems sad to see him go, but convinced he's a shoo-in. Uh, Murdoch finds the previous patent from Dr. Birkins, and it's called corn shards, <laughs> basically cornflakes, so cereal. Uh, Crabtree comments, that sounds revolting, <laughs> which I think is so funny. Crabtree then says he had an idea once to put meat in a can that he could send halfway across the world if he wanted to. And so cue Murdoch having an idea. <laughs> and then cut to him on his bicycle going to visit Dr. Birkins' physician office in town. Birkin says that his corn shards were a good idea if it hadn't been for Kellogg getting his product on the market first. Great little Easter egg. Yeah. <laughs> 
So Birkins says that Percy Pollock finally decided to invest $5,000 wired to the bank the day after they met. Very curious and very suspicious. So the awful smell, we find out what it was. He was hatching the pupae that were found in the wound. Uh, he used rotting liver to feed the bugs, hence the smell. And June bugs should, in theory, all hatch on the same day because they're June bugs. But an entomologist at the University of Toronto claimed his bugs hatched five days prior. So a clue that the timeline for Pollock's death was off. So Ogden suggests a cold snap. And now we get a real Murdoch mind palace uh, where he's like in the scene as it's happening. The body was on the ground, which is how the bug pupae got in. But something delayed the hatching. Uh, the sawdust. Sawdust is used as an insulation in ice houses. Cue an ice hook. That's what that hook was potentially that we saw in the first scene. Um, if the delay for the body was uh, five days, that means he was actually murdered the night he was supposed to leave Toronto. Now a very different story. Murdoch talks to the cabbie again, and the cabbie admits that he didn't see Pollock's face when he came back from, from his stop at the farm. So Murdoch now believes that Pollock wanted out of his dealings with Birkins, and that Birkins and Ayat may be working together to have killed him and get his money. So Murdoch leaves with Crabtree to investigate the Birkins farm again, and while he's gone, Chief Constable Stockton comes by to see him. Uh, Stockton reveals that because Murdoch is Catholic, it's a deal-breaker for him. He views Toronto as a Protestant city and doesn't want to have a Catholic as an inspector in his precinct, so he won't hire Murdoch for the position. Ogden has been looking into Ayat's files from his autopsy and finds that it was conducted by a man named Dr. Sherman, who's now deceased but shared a practice with Dr. Birkins. Ding, ding, ding. Ogden says she already tried to call, but he was busy at his practice. So Brackenreed decides to go to Birkins' practice in town and pay him a visit by himself. Of course he does. Back to Crabtree and Murdoch on the farm. It's empty, but there is an ice house. In the ice house, they find, dead in a block of ice, Walter Ayat. So if Ayat's dead, the killer must be Birkins. So Murdoch calls in about the dead body, but Brackenreed has already left to see Birkins. Um, Crabtree wants to jump on his bike, but Murdoch turns and there's a hard zoom on the motorcycle. He jumps on and races into town with Crabtree lagging behind. There's a tense exchange then with Birkins and Brackenreed. Birkins grabs a scalpel and slashes Brackenreed before Murdoch comes in and gives Birkins a good punch to the face. <laughs> Brackenreed ends up in hospital for a couple days. Uh, Birkins confesses to Pollock and Ayat's death and says Ayat killed the judge. All is right. All is set. Brackenreed, now rather than telling Murdoch that Constable Stockton didn't want to take him on, just asks Murdoch to reconsider. He says he would like help keeping him out of trouble and that the men at the station like him. So Murdoch agrees, and Brackenreed says he'll inform the constable of his decision. Murdoch cheekily asks about a raise, and Brackenreed responds, Don't push your luck, Murdoch. Roll credits. That's the episode. Well done. Thanks. It was long. <laughs> yeah, it was long. It was a complicated episode, I thought. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this week I'm going first on the research. I chose to do basically a bit of background just on Canada and its socio-political 
elements, especially regarding the anti-Roman Catholic sentiment given by the chief inspector. Is he the chief? He's not the chief inspector. Who is he? He's like... Chief constable. Chief constable. Yeah. So I don't really know that much about Canada, to be honest. (laughs) Okay, so the history of Canada. Obviously long and varied, but I'm just briefing myself and the rest with the relative basics because I know at the time of the show, Canada is still very closely tied to Britain, and I wanted to better understand the system of government in place and everything. Brackenreed is obviously proudly English and wears his St. George's Cross pin, and while doing this, he is more viable as a career police officer than a native-born Canadian like Murdoch, which I think kind of hints at 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 the structure of society. Anywho, Canada. I'm going to start with the colonies of New France, which once included territories just west of the Great Lakes and all the way down to present-day U.S. Louisiana. But in the 18th century, so the 1700s, most of that was ceded to the British, starting with Nova Scotia through the Treaty of Utrecht, and then the rest at the end of the Seven Years' War in 1763. Thirteen years later than after this, the U.S. Declaration of Independence was signed, just to contextualize where we are in time. Apparently, there were possibilities Nova Scotia would have joined the revolution, as it had also been called the 14th Colony. But because it was a maritime economy, they were disrupted by the war and weren't super into it. Something like 50,000 British loyalists fled to Nova Scotia from the former colonies, and the other Canadian provinces after the war, changing the demographics and communities of of those areas. In the first half of the 19th century, Canada saw a huge influx of immigrants, almost a million people coming from Britain alone, including Irish people escaping the famine starting in 1845, and Scots displaced by Highland clearances. This further changed demographics as a clear division formed between French-speaking Canadians and English-speaking Canadians. So all this set up a need for what is called responsible government, which is kind of an alien term for us, like we wouldn't call it that. (laughs) But I guess it was a term given for a need for Canada to have their own parliamentary system, which could govern their own needs rather than answer to the British monarch directly. So now the most populated sections of Canada were Quebec, Ontario, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick, which united into a federation on July 1st, 1867. So a little less than 30 years prior to the events of Murdoch's show. All of our main characters that we see in the show, except maybe George Crabtree, would have been alive when it happened. The British Parliament and Queen Victoria were all very pleased to ratify this. I found this kind of complicated because it's basically their independence, except it wasn't. And I mean, technically, they still aren't independent. I mean, I knew they were part of the British Commonwealth, but my best guess is that what it means to be part of the Commonwealth has changed slowly over time. At the time, they were still citizens of the Queen and proud to be, rather than identifying as, like, the country of Canada, right? They were still really loyal to the Queen, um, which is so different from how we think of, I don't know, governmental developments, because we're like, I was like, what do you mean they're not independent? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Anyways, 
In many ways, the motivation to declare the Canadian Confederation was mostly to organize interprovincial infrastructure, like a railway system, mm. and to stave off expansion from the U.S., who had started manifesting their destiny and had gotten Alaska at this time. After the Confederation was established, development of the more Western territories took off. The amazing thing is looking at a map and realizing how close so many landmarks are. I feel like we often just see an isolated map of the U.S. or an isolated map of specific countries and not them like sitting next to each other. So, I mean, we don't have great geography education in the States, but last week I talked about the Niagara Falls Dam powering all of Buffalo and I was like, wow, alternating current really does travel. And then I looked at a map and Niagara Falls is literally right next to Buffalo. I'm like an wow. idiot. <laughs> I mean, I also thought it was far. <laughs> and Toronto is like a less than a two hour drive away from Buffalo. Like they're right there. Wow. Why do I keep thinking Toronto is on the west and not the east side? I know. Okay, so like, but also... Vancouver? Am I thinking Vancouver? Is that probably why? Yeah, probably. How weird. But the thing is, like, Toronto and Vancouver are both so much closer to the border than I expected. Like, I just assume that mm. they're, like, in there. That they're, you know... Over there. That they're oh, in inside, not on the outside. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but they're right, right there. Yeah, that might just be my California spatial conception, though, because everything is so spread out here. I was like, I mean, even when I look at a map of like how close Boston is to Washington, I'm like, that's bonkers. Um, Agreed. So, but my ancestors came to the States from Nova Scotia and I was imagining it like, yeah, they went south, except Nova Scotia is literally parallel to Maine and Maine actually reaches farther north than Nova Scotia. Whoa. Okay. So I'm mentioning Nova Scotia because Murdoch says that he's from Nova Scotia. So he's from Nova Scotia. His mother is dead. His father is or was a a sailor or a fisherman or something like that, mm -hmm. um, which makes sense because Nova Scotia, it's a peninsula. Everything is about maritime, sailing, fishing, whatever. It's about water. Huh. So... Nova Scotia means New Scotland in Latin. As I said, it's a peninsula on the southeastern tip of Canada, so seafaring and shipping was a big deal. In the second half of the 19th century, Nova Scotia became internationally renowned for its sailors and building wooden ships. I also looked up the origin of Murdoch's name, which is Gaelic, most likely Scots Gaelic, and it means seafarer, which I don't know if that's like, you know, a little wink wink. Oh, cool. But I thought it was cool. That's so awesome. Yeah. In the 19th century, roughly a quarter of the people in Nova Scotia were Roman Catholic. And then, like, it said that another quarter was Protestant. And then the rest were other forms of Protestantism. So I think that what they meant by Protestant was, you know, members of the Church of England. So a specific kind of Catholic Protestant issue <laughs> there. Yeah. Which was very reminiscent of the Troubles. Yeah, exactly. So, as I said, Canada was still very much loyal to Imperial Britain, a Protestant nation, and the Protestant versus Catholic tensions were largely the same old story. 
racial, classist, and religious prejudice rolled into one when Irish Catholics arrived with nothing in the mid-1800s. And there was already some tension between the French Catholic and the controlling white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. So, like, that's another thing to keep in mind is that this whole area was first colonized by the French and by French-speaking people who were not members of the Church of England. So there's this thing called the Orange Order, which was a Protestant fraternity named after William of Orange. William of Orange led a victory against the Catholic James II in 1690. So that was like way before what we're really talking about here. But it was, it's really important for the the, Pro- the Irish Protestant versus the Irish Catholic kind of tension. And this is why the Irish flag is orange, white, and green to embody the Catholic, as in the green, and the Protestant, which is represented by the orange, background of its oh. people. Which, I can't believe I didn't know that. Like, that's such a simple thing to, to know. <laughs> um, I had no idea. Yeah. So... Whenever they're talking about, like, Orange Men or Orange March or the Orange Order, they're talking about Protestants, usually Irish. Whoa. Anyways, the Orange Order held a lot of political power in Victorian Toronto, including public service jobs like police and firemen. Mm. Between 1845 and 1900, all but three of the city's mayors were members of the Order. And on top of this, there were discriminatory hiring practices, both in the municipal and the private sectors, so that if you had an Irish accent, you couldn't even be hired as a shop girl. Wow. And of course, I'm talking about this, like, the only Catholics are Irish. Obviously, Murdoch is not, to our knowledge, of any kind of Irish descent. He's probably, his people have probably been in Canada for a while, but that there is this overlapping of prejudice for Irish people that sort of becomes synonymous with Catholic people. Mm. What's also significant to Murdoch's situation is that Inspector Stockton doesn't call him just a Catholic, but a papist, which highlights Stockton's fear that as a Roman Catholic, fear or prejudice, that as a Roman Catholic, Murdoch can't be trusted to honor the Queen's law. This was also a big controversy when JFK was elected U.S. president, Mm. as everyone was worried that his loyalty would be to the Pope and not to the American people. Had field day with that one. Of course, it was fine. But that's one reason why, uh, like, for example, on Dairy Girls, the Quins have JFK, like a picture of JFK up on their wall. (laughs) Because JFK is, is Roman Catholic and successful and, you know. Irish-American. Yeah. So all the anti-Irish sentiment that the immigrant and Irish immigrants found in Canada had only served to make them more reliant and loyal to the Catholic Church and communities, which rose to the occasion by forming social aid groups, schools, unions, temperance movements, and so many other things that ended up giving, giving a sense of solidarity and structure and much-needed welfare to Irish Catholics, and it was inherently tied into their religion. So the Church of England was kind of more chill, or I guess inherently British loyalist. Like, it's literally called the Church of England. Um, Mm -hmm. It's literally a style of Christianity defined by its nation, whereas 
Roman Catholicism, one of the biggest facets is that you you follow the Pope, right? Yeah. In Anglo-Protestant circles, being, and I don't know if like this is something that has happened over time. I I mean, I almost kind of get the feeling that it's because of anti-Catholic sentiment over history and like, you know, especially like the Irish versus English kind of issues that then Irish Catholics went into their Catholicism or tied more closely to it and became more, more religious, you know? Mm. I mean, everyone always talks about like parochial school and like, oh, I went to a Catholic school and what that means, right? That it's like, it's something else. (laughs) Whereas like, I feel like English Protestants are kind of more chill about their religion. Like, it's just something they think about for an hour on Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, like even, not just to single out the Catholics, but even Puritans. Like, I feel like the fact that Puritans came to America has defined so much about, like, American modes of religion that we have to be, yeah. like, all in or something. Whereas I feel like uh, British Protestantism has sort of, there's sort of, like, this... Yeah, we all are. Like, it's chill. Like, you know, whatever. They don't, like... It's not as orthodox, I guess. If, But I guess that's not... I don't know if that's the right word, but that's what it sort of feels like, you know? Yeah, it's almost more related to ideology and identity and morality than it is necessarily to just, like, a religious, like, ritualistic practice. Yeah. It's kind of more like, yeah, we all believe in God. We all know what's going to happen when we die. And that's cool, right? Like, that that's... That's kind of where their concerns. They don't have like that ingrained shame. Shame. It's <laughs> going on. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, so but this is again sort of like maybe an assumption, maybe like a bad guess. But from what I've seen of like books and and television, another thing is that like in Anglo Protestant circles, being too religious would kind of seem like not just unfashionable, but, like, like wrong. Mm. And so that might also be why, or or not why, but some kind of, like, stereotype that is built around, like, the tension around this, right? That, like, Irish Catholics are zealots or something. Because mm. Stockton does sort of talk about it, like, Murdoch is the one complicating things or something, right? I mean... Religion shouldn't come into your policing. Like, why do you have to go and be a Catholic? Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah. So, I'm not sure if I'm, like, overstepping here, but that's sort of the vibe I get. Anyways, that's sort of what I did my research on. And, um... Cool. So, the title of the show being called The Glass Ceiling. Yeah, what's that about? Um, my best guess is that it is... It is referring, it's like, to the fact that Murdoch is up for this job and cannot, cannot break into the job because of um. his religion. Which, the thing is that the glass ceiling, like, phrase, I always kind of heard associated to, like, women in the workforce or the wage gap and stuff like that. Yeah. But it is also true that at this time, municipal jobs were, like, not available to Irish Catholics. They could not enter that field, which, you know, set them to a big disadvantage because 
jobs like being a fireman or being a police officer is a really, it's an accessible, like you don't have to have a high education for it, but it's also a job of dignity. It's a respected job, you know, and it, and it has openings for growth where a lot of jobs at the time wouldn't have. Yeah. And the fact that they were locked out of it kind of meant that they always had to remain poor, right? Yeah. But actually, I could just do a bit of light Googling and double check what the glass ceiling actually means. This is how we do our research. Some light Googling. Oh, apparently it does refer to any demographic that, you know, has an invisible barrier from rising. Yeah, I think it's likely just that us as women know it mostly in relation to the female demographic. Yeah. Especially because of how often it was brought up in 2016 with um, Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah. And also, like, I'm sure it was a big deal in, like, the 80s. But yeah, so that was mine. Okay, cool. What did you do? I, uh, so on brand. I did motorcycles. (laughs) You? A bike? I know. Again, might as well. You know, do it once. Couldn't pass it up. Plus, I was actually really interested because I felt like such a doofus not having realized that, you know, they even knew how to coast on a bike. And now, of course, (laughs) there's a motorcycle that shows up in the next episode. And so I'm like, wow, I really had no understanding of the 1890s. (laughs) So I wanted to do some more research on it. So... Yes, motorcycles. Interesting, surprisingly. Um, And it seems as if the market was saturated with a bunch of different people all trying out this similar idea around this time. Mm. So it's actually kind of difficult to pin down, like, the first quote-unquote motorcycle. But by this old definition of, like, a two-wheel having an internal combustion engine... So something that rolls that runs off of petroleum that runs off of gas. The first internal combustion petroleum bike was called the Reitwagen, <laughs> and it was built in 1885 by Gottlieb Daimler and Wilhelm Maybach in Germany. And Maybach is actually apparently really known for car production in the 1890s, and you know, um really went deep into that field and was called, quote-unquote, the king of designers. So that was cool. Uh, but so this this first motorcycle, um, it had zero steering, as we would imagine a typical bicycle would. It didn't oh steer that way. Um, Wait, so it just could only go straight? No. So instead, it's really odd. The way, like, where the motor sits... And this stuff, it has these two wheels that are almost like um, stabilizing wheels mm-hmm. on on either side. They're not on the back wheel, like with training wheels, but it's that idea so that um, it actually then you you would lean and lean onto one of those outer rigging wheels and that would help you um, turn. Oh. But really, it like wasn't a true prototype for a motorcycle. Mostly they made it to um, test their particular new engine that they had made. Mm-hmm. So they only made one of these. It was it was like, this was the prototype. This was a one-off. But so prior to this, there were actually um, two different steam engine motorcycles. There were also some prototypes that were made that they called 
velocipedes. Yeah, and there were two different ones, both in like 1867 and 1868, around that time. And then soon after the Reitwagen, there was um, another internal combustion petroleum motorcycle, but it was called the Butler Petrol Cycle, and it has three wheels, and it, it looks so interesting. But okay, so it was built by Edward Butler. He conceived of it in 1884, and it was built in 88. He worked with the Merriweather Fire Engine Company in Greenwich, England, to have it be built. So yes, this used petroleum. It has three wheels, so it has two wheels in the front. Two wheels in the front, and you sit between the two front wheels. Mm -hmm. And you sit upright, and it looks like there's no, like, steering wheel. Um, there's just levers, and the wheels are big, so it kind of looks like a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And then with a big wheel off of the back, and that's the one that has the motor on it. Oh my gosh. As well as, again, like some other like stabilizing wheels and this stuff. It has a bunch of stuff that is um, that was state of the art for the time. Uh -huh. right? um, that I really, for the most part, don't understand. Yeah, so it used, in order to steer, it used something called Ackerman steering because the inner wheel has a, a different radii than the outer wheel of a turn, right? If there's two wheels side by side. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it turns the wheels at different angles to help you make a circle. Anyway, it's, it's it seems kind of interesting, but I don't really understand how it works. But yeah, it just looks so interesting. It looks like this sort of wheelchair with a big wheel off the back. So that's that one. And ultimately that three wheel ended up failing he could not find sufficient financial backing for it. And so then we finally, in 1894, get the first motorcycle mass production. And the particular motorcycle is the Hildebrand and Wolfmuller. And they were the first ones to also call it a motorcycle as well. Mm -hmm. um, all of the others were these weird, like, velocipedes. <laughs> but so interestingly enough, then, around... Around this time, there was another inventor in Italy, Enrico Bernardi, who made something called the Motrice Pia. And in the Italian encyclopedia, they say that he is the inventor of the motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> but the date's hard to pin down because really he made a gasoline engine in 1882 and 84 um, to 84, but it powered a sewing machine. And then he took that and he put it on a tricycle. He put it on a kid's tricycle in 84. And then he did another kind of motorized, like real adult tricycle in 1893. And that one's like a proper tricycle with one wheel in the front and two wheels in the back. Mm -hmm. And then in 1894, he instead like made a trailer to go off of the back of a motorcycle that had the actual motor on it that you could like hook up to oh. um so yeah so so really interesting but he didn't really like have all of the pieces in one right as a two-wheel two-wheel bicycle with a motor on it mm -hmm. so i think that's pretty much why they say the the right wagon by the german inventors is is the first one but similarly, there were also electric ones. So we had steam-powered ones, we had internal combustion ones, and then they were also trying to make electric ones around the same time. Uh -huh. um, and so there were some of the first patents for them were in 
1895, two people submitted patents like two months apart. So one was on the 19th of September, 1895, and it was called an electrical bicycle filed by Ogden Bolton Jr. in Canton, Ohio. And I thought that was just so funny that because we have Ogden, a wom- the woman with the last name Ogden in the show, and then this, <laughs> yeah. this guy Ogden. <laughs> I was like, ooh, <laughs> that's fun. Which And it's funny because it's a name I've also never heard before, and now I'm seeing it pop up again. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and then on the 8th of November, just later that year, someone with an electric bicycle, not an electrical, but electric bicycle, uh, filed for a patent and it was by, oh my god, I'm gonna say their name wrong. It looks like Hose, H-O-S-E, with an A at the end. Hosea W. Libby. And they're from Boston, Massachusetts. So both of those were in the U.S. And they really tried doing lots of different trials of different kinds of electric electric motorcycles using different methods, like really through the 1910s, but it didn't pick up in the same way as the um, internal combustion ones did, as much as the gas ones did. It just really didn't have the same kind of market, but they're still making them to this day. It's just been really kind of um, intermittent in lots of different designs. Yeah, so that's pretty much how it was made. And really, then they started to kick off around the First World War mm. and because they replaced horses for carrying messages. So they were able to instead put someone on a motorcycle instead of putting someone on a horse to relay things during the war. Um, and Harley Davidson, which is a company we know of, they were around at the time, and they devoted over 50% of their factory output toward the military contract by the end of the war. Hmm. And there was a British company, Triumph Motorcycles, which sold more than 30,000 of its Triumph Type H models to Allied forces. Just a ton of this particular model. And I think it was the first model to not have, like, pedals, like a bike has pedals, and was, like, super reliable, apparently. So they made a bunch of those. But yeah, that was really sort of how it got kicked off and how they, when they made a bunch of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what I researched, the motorcycle. Cool. So I did look up one or two other things that caught my eye. I did not go sure. in depth because I was kind of more interested in like the vague stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> like an entire history of Canada. Um, <laughs> but I did look up the Kellogg's. Um, yeah. So, and this was, I do think there's like a drunk history of this, or I had heard some kind of rendition of this little fun fact before. Same. But I just double checked it, and um, basically, Kellogg's, brothers Kellogg's, or, I mean, depending on which brother you think really invented it. I don't think it, mm. whatever. It's not that they fight over it, it's just that, do you think one of them made it, or did both of them make it? Um, uh. They were... Two brothers, William and John Kellogg, who were both working at a sanatorium and were looking for a reliable and healthy food item to feed their patients. And they um, were making cornmeal, something with corn flour, and then had to leave it because of a patient and then it became stale. And then when they came back to it and they rolled it out, it came out in flakes. 
And so then they just decided to give it a whirl and bake it anyways, even though it was stale. And it turned into the cereal. And so William Kellogg went on to to market it and to build a company around it. John was the superintendent at the sanatorium, so he was kind of more like, oh, but it's for my patients. And William was like, let's put sugar on it and sell it. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that all happened in um, 1894. So, wow, yeah. Again, sort of like right up against our timeline. Yeah. And then I looked up another little fun fact, I guess. Oh, well, well, I know a little bit. Oh, yeah, go for it. The Kellogg thing, I think. There was a bunch of weird stuff around it, and one of the reasons that it was able to kick off the way it did, because it wouldn't, cereal like that would not have been possible before um, good refrigeration, because milk wouldn't have lasted. And so the fact that they were able to get good milk to people to have with the cereal was also a big reason that cereal was able to take off at all. Oh, yeah. And I think from my... Maybe I'm mixing this up with something else, but I thought there was almost, like, this weird cult-like aspect where they wanted to really give people, like, cereal and all of these, like, meals and oats because they were trying to, like, they thought that the devil was in the bowels, and so they were trying to make people have, like, bowel movements, like, two to three times a day. Oh. And giving them enemas and all this stuff. I mean, that's not impossible. Like, especially because, I mean, most cereals are sort of, like, high fiber. Yeah, but I don't know if that's Quaker. Maybe that's more related to how Quaker oats came about than it was to the cereal, but I thought it was a Kellogg thing. So maybe don't take my word on it 100%, but... Hello, Kalinda from the future. Okay, so I double-checked the Kellogg thing that I was talking about. It wasn't necessarily about the devil being in the bowels. It had to do with germ theory of disease, that he was, like, real into hygiene and he was worried about bacteria in the intestines. So he did actually use enemas to clear intestinal flora, among um, a bunch of other, like, sunbathing and hydrotherapy and other things that he just believed were holistic and good in general for hygiene and health. But yeah, lots of pooping. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah, so then the other thing I did a little... A little looky-loo at was well as I was kind of like saying before we started recording I'm kind of like still just waiting for Dr. Ogden and um Crabtree to become more more colorful as characters but in this episode we got like a little a little bit of something something from Dr. Ogden where there are a couple scenes where we see her listening to music oh yeah on a phonogram the music seems way too cheery for the fact that she's in a yeah she's like doing an autopsy <laughs> and like when I was watching it I was like what is she, what is this like Gilbert and Sullivan or something because it's like that's all anybody had to listen to before <laughs> before popular music even like got going and it turned out yes she was just listening to Gilbert and Sullivan oh I don't think I've ever even heard of Gilbert and Sullivan Kalinda you're a music major. What can I say? Pirates of Penzance? Oh, okay. What's that song that they make everyone sing when they first start, like, singing lessons? I don't know. What was... I I had to, and it was something like... It was something cheeky. You know, like, Gilbert and Sullivan, basically, they're like... I didn't even think to to do research on Gilbert and Sullivan, but they... 
they do not operas, but like, you know, kind of like operettas where it's more like there's a... Oh, yes. They're more like playful. They're more cheeky. They're sort of comedic opera style things. Yeah. Yeah, because they used to actually like show those before an opera. Yeah. But yeah, now it's going to bug me that I can't remember the song. Well. <laughs> Oh, okay. So the song is Love is a Plaintive Song. Oh, I don't think I do know this song. And I I don't actually know. I don't think that this one is from Pirates of Penzance, but I did have to sing it. And again, the point just being that like it starts out sort of cheeky. Like it's it's love is this tempestuous, maddening, passionate, like, you know, it makes you makes you miserable or whatever and then she anyways that's gilbert and sullivan point is though the phonogram so yeah oh oh cool <laughs> we get a moment with dr ogden she's playing a phonogram so it turns out this uh phonogram is anachronistic this item wouldn't have been used or invented until like 20 years later wow really but it isn't like it's probably more like a prop issue where it's like it's hard to come by any kind of phonogram now. So, oh, but the point just being that I think from a, you know, a storytelling perspective, the point is that she listens to music. She has something that's very innovative for the time, which is a record player, basically, and that she um, is interested in you know, arts, that she's a smart, cultured woman, right? And that that's like what we're slowly starting to learn about her. And obviously, Mm -hmm. when we first see uh, the phonogram, it's like you could blink and you would miss it, right? There, I feel like we're not getting enough of Dr. Ogden. But anyways, um, Murdoch comes into the morgue and, you know, hears the music and looks at the phonogram and then looks at Dr. Ogden like he's learned something new about her, which is that she listens to Gilbert and Sullivan and has a phonogram. But that again, it's sort of putting in this little hint that they are sort of kindred spirits, that they're both interested in technology and art, basically. That's cool. So yeah, that's the other little tidbit I have. Did not mean to go into a tirade about Gilbert and Sullivan in this one song. But um No, but I I wanted to know. That's so cool. <laughs> so yeah, so do you have any Thoughts, comments, concerns, thoughts, issues. Did I say thoughts twice? Well, thoughts are important, so. <laughs> um, no, I don't, I don't think so. Like, about, about the whole episode and all? Oh, um, I guess the only other thing was, like, so there was Walter Iatt was in A Block of Ice. So it's funny when they were saying that, right, that the dead body or whatever, um, there was a cold snap. I assumed it was kept in or around ice. And then instead we saw this body literally, like, in a block of ice. Uh, and that made me really curious because I was just... Right? Wasn't he? I didn't think so. I thought there no? was just ice on top. I mean, visibility oh. to see a whole person like that, like a whole face through ice, I don't think is actually realistic. But, um, you know, for visual language, we had to be able to see him, right? Oh, yeah, I guess I just sort of assumed he was, like, frozen in the ice, which then made me curious, like, how would they have gotten him in the ice? It would make more sense if he was just packed around it, right? Yeah, I do think that that's what actually is supposed to be happening, because yeah. I think at the time you couldn't really, like, 
make ice. Oh, I know, right? That's that's some of, too, what I was thinking that was so fascinating was just, like, recalling, like, oh, right, refrigeration <laughs> is not really a thing. Right. Like, it's in an ice house. That doesn't mean he's in, like, a walk-in freezer. That's, like, it's literally just a barn with a section in the middle that had a bunch of ice <laughs> and some yeah. sawdust to try to, to try to insulate the ice. Yeah, that didn't actually look that realistic to me either because I was like, it should be below ground. Like a bit of sawdust sprinkled on top isn't going to keep that from melting. <laughs> so yeah, I think that that was just them like, you know, working with what they had. Yeah. But I think realistically, uh, usually it's underground in the dark mm. and there's a lot more of it too. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, right. <laughs> looking at that when they walked into the ice house and i'm like where's all the ice <laughs> um but that was more just like something i noticed than necessarily something i researched i don't think i did any other research yeah so one of the things that you know like this isn't the last time it'll come up probably but i mean we learned more about bracken reed in this episode so if we're like filling out our main cast we got a bit of bracken yeah. reed here and I think it's also, like, sometimes it's hard to like Bracken Reed as a character mm -hmm. because, I mean, what he does is completely immoral <laughs> as a police officer. But we're not supposed to think of him as, like, a villain. And so that's just, you know, looking at the show realistically is that it does sort of excuse what he does. Yeah. But... I think I do understand why he's there or why he's a character, why he's important and why he maintains, you know, importance in the show. Because um, I think the biggest point that he makes is showing how Murdoch is new. Yeah. Is doing new things and is one of the first to become basically step into forensic science rather than just interrogation. Yeah. And Bracken Reed is very much of the old guard of policing. And I think we're even going to see, like, way in the future, probably some mention of, you know, police reform. Um, maybe not in Canada, maybe not, like, very clearly, but it'll be, like, talked about or dropped a little. And that this is actually the time when a lot of that is happening. I mean, not that, you know, it doesn't also need some more reform, but <laughs> just say yeah 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 it was interesting yeah to see more of bracken reed and just that sense that what really came out of him particularly probably because he was also afraid because he was a target mm -hmm. had to do with like leaning back on his tried and true methods and he's like murdoch you can do you can follow your evidence and whatever but i don't have time i'm gonna do it the way i know how to do it and like when he beat that man up and then supposedly got what he wanted um he kind of like even bragged to murdoch like some it's like sometimes my way just works or whatever right and then it turned out to be a setup mm -hmm. and he probably would have died had murdoch not been there yeah and so like you really get this sense that he appreciates murdoch and having murdoch around even though like he doesn't necessarily always agree mm-hmm and, like, he doesn't give a crap about any of the prejudice stuff that this other chief constable does, right? Right. About him being Catholic. He's like, what does it matter? He's a good officer. And, like, and then, of course, like, also wants to, 
I don't know, spare Murdoch knowing that as well. And so doesn't tell him. Um, instead just tries to be like, hey, I want you around. Which probably is also true. Mm-hmm. But goes about it that way rather than saying that he didn't get the job. Mm-hmm. Sort of is just like, hey, keep working here. And then... uh <laughs> Yeah, I also wonder if... I mean, it was sort of hard to tell in that scene if Murdoch could sort of read between the lines or not. And I'm not even 100% sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And just another thing, just because I didn't say it, but like the other thing is Bracken Reed. In terms of what, you know, is wrong for an officer to do to our yeah. standards, right? Beating suspects and then also drinking on the job, which he does all the time. Oh, that's true too. Especially as he is getting more worried. Yeah. And it's like, that's exactly when you're not supposed to, man, dude. Yeah, and more angry and more defensive. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it also does show, I mean, we only just learned that Murdoch is Roman Catholic, but um, I'm going to give some more away here, but also Murdoch is dry. He's sober. So that's like part of his faith. Actually, it's not 100. It's not like it's strict to his faith, but it's suggested, right? And you know what that also sort of like juxtaposes between the two men and like, in a lot of ways, like, it could also be that, like, you know, I would get the sense that, you know, knocking one back with the boys or whatever is good for your career, right? The camaraderie, the connections. Yeah. But Murdoch doesn't do any of that. And yet, as we just heard in this episode, that the men really like him. He gets along well with people. Mm-hmm. And even though he's sort of Sherlockian. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, people respect him and so on. He's not antisocial, right? <laughs> yeah. Good episode. Yeah, I sort of like the subplots better. Only, only episode two, but I liked it. I know, I'm already having a hard time not, like, continuing on with the show. <laughs> Don't worry, in only a week's time, we'll be back again talking about episode three. Name I don't know. Name I don't know either, I didn't even look it up. Uh, I ne- why do I never look this up ahead of time? Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I guess that's it. Yeah, that's it for today's episode, covering season one, episode two. Uh, next week, next Wednesday, we'll be back talking about season one, episode three. So, hope to catch you then. Bye. <laughs>